Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, conversations between two humans with a pulse as opposed to computer-generated voices. It's the real-life double act of independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist and author Will Page. Mm-hmm. And this is what we do. We lay out inconvenient truths about how business and financial markets really work. We're now deep into our inquisition into AI and whether it's a bubble or just spells trouble. And we welcome a close friend of the show and a close friend, personal friend, the father of JavaScript and a Silicon Valley legend, Brendan Eich. Brendan left the CTO role of Mozilla Firefox years ago and embarked on a journey to scale up a privacy-first browser and search business that would reward the sites you visit with a token reflecting your attention and the value you see there. He's a true nerd, a tech visionary, and a good friend, and no better guide to the way big tech is seeking to grab resources and control the AI revolution. Back in a moment. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Brendan. And full disclosure before we start in the fact that I'm a tiny early investor in Brave, but I always believed we needed alternatives to the chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry basic flavors big tech were offering. Can you give us a bit of your background and about your journey from writing JavaScript in a frenzy of all-night programming to deciding to fight the heavyweight champions of the tech market? Sure. Thanks for having me. I went to Netscape after a startup you haven't heard of that became a patent zombie called MicroUnity. I went to Netscape in April 1995 after turning them down the year before when I should have gone because that was the entry level and the company was just starting. But I realized at that point that Netscape was about to take off the IPO in August 1995. And speaking of bubbles, Jim Clark knew that the internet was going to bubble fast and he wanted to get ahead of it or goose it. So he pushed for an early IPO. I'd come from his company Silicon Graphics, where I joined in 1985 out of grad school, when I was used to IPO after three consecutive quarters of profitability, no EBITDA fake profitability. And so I was kind of shocked by Netscape going public so soon, but it worked. I think it worked so well that we had Pets.com and the whole debacle, but it lined up with what the Fed was doing, what Greenspan was doing, and what technology had been doing. So I wrote JavaScript because they tried to get me to come and do a language called Steam in the browser. And Steam, if you are a nerd, is a Lisp language, a very beautiful language. When I got there, there was no Steam in the browser. It was going to be either Java only, or I could do this sidekick language to Java, hence the name JavaScript. And that that's what they wanted in the marketing department. So we finally got a trademark license from Sun in December of that year. And meanwhile, JavaScript, I'd hacked out in 10 days in May. And when you're doing software, you realize it gets frozen early. You can't change it. That happened. So 
all you kids out there, be careful what prototypes you deliver for rapid productization because they will ship with all their bugs and more. And so before I get on to Brave, one of the phrases we hear bandied about all the time is surveillance capitalism. And another one that we spent a good bit of time in Bubble Trouble dissecting is the creator economy. And we did a lot of podcasts about what a bubble that proved to be for all but the lucky few. You're kind of trying to solve both issues with Brave, give people their privacy back and reward creators. Is the first protecting privacy going a little bit better than the second rewarding creators? Or there are just too many creators out there to reward, which is something that Will's looked at in the music industry with all the tens of thousands of songs uploaded every second to the streaming platforms. Yes. First of all, I think you can't serve two masters. So we picked users over creators. All uh, creators are users. Not all users are creators. So mm -hmm. we put users first when we have to. We try to reward creators too. Because what I saw doing Netscape and then Mozilla and Firefox is the problems Will's observed, everybody sees network effects or power laws or double power laws that multiply, create these very uneven distributions. And distribution power is what matters. JavaScript itself as a programming language benefited from this, right? But with Google, especially in the Web2 era, and to a lesser extent, Bing, which chased Google on search, so Microsoft was trying to come back. There, there was a lopsidedness to the internet that most of us early web people didn't like. We thought the web should be much more level of playing field, many more creators who are doing okay. And we saw everybody get captured by the, the big platforms. So Firefox was a party to this because we had a search deal with Google starting in 2004 that was very rewarding. It's so rewarding that we kind of got captured at Mozilla. I'll say this because I was there at the time by Google. And then they did Chrome. And I realized in doing all this, that the browser is this sort of underappreciated agent that should represent the user, but instead of being the user's agent, it's usually big tech's agent. And in fact, all the big tech companies have their own browsers. So with Brave, we're trying to disintermediate all those big platforms, give a browser to users that puts the user first and lets those users who are creators get paid directly. So this should lower fees. It gets rid of a lot of fraud vectors. It makes it a much thinner stack of revenue sharing, eliminates counterparty risk. It's just a better approach if you can do it. And that led us not only to do Brave as a user agent, but also to look at blockchain, because once you block all the ad tech payments that go through conventional net 30 invoicing or conventional finance rails, you have to re-plumb the finance to include the user, to deal the user in. And there's hardly any way to do this except crypto. So that's why Brave is into crypto as well. Hmm. Brandon, great answer. And you've covered so much ground in that first question. I, I, I want to dig deep on all of it. A couple of quick points. Firstly, our previous guest, the AI music company Boomy, B-O-O-M-Y, they had an interesting take on that creator-consumer point that you referred to. Uh, the conversation with Boomy started like this. They said to me, Will, how many creators does Spotify got? I said, 8 million. Then they said, how many people are on the planet? I said, 8 billion. And then they said... It's not a lot, is it? Their intention to turn 8 billion people into creators is quite a, a jaw-dropping opener. But you talked about privacy. I wanted to come in on this privacy lane real quickly and ask a kind of policy question around privacy. Now, here in the UK, we have our online harms bill going through Parliament. It's been going through for years now. Similar bills around the world. And I call it the Christmas tree bill. The more twists and turns it takes, the more politicians put stuff on it, the more unworkable the bill actually becomes. But I made this point in my book, which is privacy campaigners want a fully encrypted messaging service, whilst at the same time demanding red flags on when someone sharing, is sharing indecent images. 
And the point I was trying to make is for these politicians and these lobbyists, pick one or pick the other, but don't try and pick both. Do you see in the privacy debate from where you're coming at it, this trade-off between people wanting their cake and eating it, which is privacy is a much more complex subject than saying, ban indecent images, but make sure my service is encrypted. How can you come in on that? Yeah, privacy, it, I'll use the UK pronunciation, is not a unitary good. And this is something that has caused <laughs> people to become neoists, privacy neoists, or to turn from where Zuckerberg was 13 years ago, where, oh, privacy, nobody cares about that, to, I think, 2019, Zuckerberg said, Facebook keeps you private. So he changed the word. And that meant <laughs> Facebook has your data, but everybody else doesn't. So when you get a monopoly, you stop sharing. But privacy is a complex <laughs> thing. It's a set of security properties and a technical set. And those are never, never solved. It's an eternal struggle. And that means you can't really market it easily, but people have become more conscious over time from Snowden on, especially with big tech and with ads and the cost of ads and tracking. People now using Brave know that it's a lot faster. They don't get those YouTube ads. Their battery lasts longer. These are tangible wins from practical privacy. So I want to subordinate privacy to our user-first agenda. If you put the user first with computing, it's a serious obligation because a lot of computers now you don't really own. You, you buy them from Apple every two years and they're very expensive. And inside the hardware, there's a magic inner ring of trusted computing that maybe it contained DRM and who knows what. That's not your computer. But if you ignore that, if you try to at least get the browser and the web to operate in your interests, then you have to put the user first in a way that wants privacy, it wants dealing the user in on finance. It wants other goods that are not just privacy as some kind of overarching single principle, because it's not. And that means we have to be open to economics because we're trying to replace a lot of the economics that we block with our shields. Brave Shields blocks almost all tracking in ads. We block those YouTube ads. So, so I, I think privacy, you'll hear people say there's a privacy utility trade-off. And certainly that's true for somebody else's utility like YouTube's because we're blocking their ads. But for the creator, that should not be the case because what I've seen rise, especially on YouTube, is the creator fan networks that supervene on top of YouTube. Yep. And they often rely on crypto, Patreon, the super chats on YouTube, but also other payment methods. So that economy is where I think we should move. That's what the web early guys like me wanted, we and gals. We wanted to see the creator fan networks to be free of these gatekeepers and these onerous taxes. There's so much in this to cover here. I mean, very quickly, one of the best acronyms that Richard's come up with in the history of this podcast was the DDA. He called it the Data Donation Agreement, which is what you sign when you join these platforms. I thought that was one of his favorite ones. And also you just mentioned there as well, platforms on top of platforms. I did a piece of work with Twitch during lockdown to help artists learn how to live stream. And it's just interesting to see Patreon could sit on top of Twitch. Streamlabs could sit on top of Twitch. And that, that's something in a platform economy to be aware of is when you get these platforms sitting on top of platforms, it muddled, muddies the water a little bit. But I had a second quick foundational economic question for you before we hand back to Richard, which is you mentioned network effects in your first answer and platform economics and two-sided market theories. For the listeners, I get a bit baffled with this subject because I studied economics, I get it, but sometimes economics is common sense made complicated. When you read the literature on platform economics on two-sided market theory, do you think this is groundbreaking stuff? Or is it no different from a bouncer at a nightclub who lets women in free and charges men a premium to get in? I mean, <laughs> sometimes I think this is not that revelationary after all, is it? No, no, you're, you're definitely right. Economics 
has become a bunch of obfuscated nonsense to excuse the depredations of the very rich. So, uh, you know, uh, I think we can conclude this podcast right now. That just wraps it up. Thank you, Brendan, for making everything so clear. Here's Tom with the weather. <laughs> but I think there is a, a, a obvious network uh, problem when you have people on one side who want to get something and people on the other side who are putting it out there. How do you find each yeah. other? How do you market? How do you right. reach people? Right. And that's where these gatekeepers impose their taxes and choke a lot of creators out. And I think if you look at the underlying web, it's a more of a peer-to-peer network. The IP protocol was originally. There's a lot of centralization through peering arrangements and big routers around nation state boundaries, but it's still the best we've got. And it's a lot better than just having everything on Google or everything on Spotify. So I think that one of the goals with the Brave is to make the browser be the sort of distribution agent instead of making these websites you go to or even a single blockchain be that. So can the browser be more a muscular client that represents creators and users' interests above those of these intermediaries who've just gotten so much power through being on first or second? Hmm. Yeah, I hear it. And Brendan, I think it was well over a decade ago when you were at Mozilla that you heard me give talks about the vampire squids of the web and how that you would have these large big tech companies that were fishing with a PHI, fishing to try to hoover up as much of their of the data that they could. And for them, my other phrase that I love to throw out there was open is a four-letter word. I mean, it was a basically a curse word, the idea that you would have open anything. You wanted to close things off and keep it all to yourselves. But can you dig in a little bit to your own effort to build an alternative to that world, especially now in search, but first in the browser? How does the ant move the elephant? How do you unseat the power of what, in the case of Apple, Microsoft, Google, and Facebook, these are top 10 brands in the world. And how do you see, before we get into talking in detail about it, AI being able to catch up to these the vast scale advantages and and dollar value advantages these companies have because of the sheer money they can throw at cloud computing resource? Sure. It's a great question because I've done this arguably several times. Netscape took over from Mosaic, but you could say that was easy. Firefox took over from Internet Explorer. Some people say that was easy because Microsoft had deinvested in the browser after losing the USB Microsoft antitrust case and feeling punished in Europe by regulators. But it wasn't easy, believe me. We were there and we had to restart that market. And the way you do it is with lead users. So lead users shape future markets. This is sometimes called user innovation networks. Eric von Hippel at MIT has written about this extensively. You have mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whole categories or industries that are invented by basically rank and file plumbers, created a lot of the tooling that got standardized in the 20th century or US fiber, fiber glass surfboards, things like that. And that's true of the web. The web has a ton of this going on with web developers. They create frameworks and libraries and servers and tools, and those take off. Microsoft comes in and sweeps up with things like TypeScript and VS.Code, and that's great. It's a sign of the web maturing, but it's still early days. And there's a lot of this lead user effect that Brave can capitalize on to move the browser market. We're growing, and growth is challenging because partly you have to use the big platforms like Google to grow. We have to pay for ASO and SEO. But hmm. again, if you can get these lead users, they'll promote you to friends and family, you'll get gr- growth. Whereas other browsers have come and gone. You've seen this even recently. Other search engines too. You saw Neva exit the Snowflake. So the, the, that search is worth talking about because what we learned with the Google deal with Firefox is search is the other side of a single coin where the face is the browser. The user sees the browser and a lot of them think that's the search engine. Or sometimes they think the search engine is the browser. And that's a reasonable conflation because they're so tied at the hip. That's why 
Google pays Apple so much to be default search in Safari. That's why we have these browsers captured by OS vendors. So Android has Chrome as default and Google's been foisting it and still is probably doing this, even though Europe, uh, Vestager, I think, smote them or tried to. It, it's, you can't wait for the regulators. As I recall, what they did with DigiComp when she was running things was they said, oh, Google, you can't force Chrome through a dark contract on these operators or OEMs that says they won't get Google mobile services if they don't make Chrome the default browser. You must have a browser choice panel or the same thing with search. You must have a, a search choice panel. Well, okay, regulator, how do we do that? And the regulator says, I don't know. You designed it for me. So Google says, we'll let you pay ASO app store optimization costs to hack your search engine, your browser up in rank in your country, and then you'll get into the search panel. So Google made money on the remedy, which they then controlled the ball on through the Play Store. It's still captured. But in spite of all this, we're persevering and lead users are the way. I think they've determined the shape of future markets and they will lead to a better web. And the timing is unclear, but it, it, I think it will happen. Hmm. Brendan, you're going to need a rubber desk for this one, but I once did a calculation that stated that uh, Google had paid more in fines to the European Commission than they had paid creators in copyright. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the numbers, but I can believe it. So, so I, think it's about, I think it's about $7 billion to the EU that they've paid thus far. Yeah. Still not enough. The thing about AI... Still, still I, not I enough to I, fill their pension black hole as well, but you know they'll keep fighting until that's filled. So, so there's another thing you can do besides lead user effect, and it relates to it. And that's if you're not a technological optimist, you should get out of software because there's just too much terrifying going on and you wouldn't get out of bed. You'd hide under your covers. So I am an optimist and I do see technological innovation helping Things like the LLMs that led to a lot of silly chatbot hallucinations, that's promising. It isn't connected to physics or mathematics yet, but it will be. And you have you still have a lot of hallucinating, even GPT-4. But this has changed a lot of cost for us. Like when we do Brave, it's not just a browser and it's not just a search engine, which we're doing too. And it's not just all this crypto economics to deal the user in and the creator. It's something that comes by default with OSs and browsers that are captured by the OS or owned by the OS. And that's, you get, oh, you get text-to-speech automatically and for free. Oh, you get page translation among many natural language pairs. Well, those used to be super expensive and only Google could really mount the machine learning teams to, to train them and really to run the infrastructure for them. That's gotten cheaper. And LLMs are making it a lot cheaper to do all sorts of natural language wow. processing like that. Hmm. And, and I think that's going to make it, personal models that are fi finely tuned, smaller, more precise, and even private, are the future. That's something Brave's investing in. Brandon, I got a couple of questions for you. One on history of browser wars and two on the regulation of the browser wars. And I just want to make sure my history is accurate. And we'll get into the rabbit hole of attention economics in part two. But is it true that when Google was battling with Yahoo, a KPI of the Yahoo browser was time spent on the browser? So they flooded it with Yahoo Finance, Yahoo Mail. It's a cluttered homepage. But the key to Google's success was KPI was least time spent on the browser, that it was just a white space of the search bar. They wanted you to get in and get off as quickly as possible. Is that the origins of how Google won and Yahoo lost? Well, so Yahoo didn't have their own browser. They had a toolbar for IE. They had various web portals and properties, mm. right? They didn't have, they never made their own browser, which was interesting because we talked to Jerry when he and Dave Filer were still running the place. And Files a tech guy, so we got on great, but we couldn't get them to adopt Firefox. And at the time, we learned, and I learned this through the standards body with JavaScript, 
Yahoo was trying to sell to Microsoft and they didn't take the offer when they should have, but they never had their own browser. But you're right. Google said, let's declutter. And partly this was just, I think, Larry and Sergey being idealistic grad students and minimalists and whoever they had on design liked it. They, they sort of fake Steve Jobs called it their Montessori kindergarten approach to their office decor and their homepage, right? It was very simple and four colors and not much there to distract you. I had friends who went there and became Google fellows even, and they would optimize Google economics through how they uh, adjusted the placement of things on the, on the, that page and on the results page, especially the search results page, let's face it. But keeping it simple is better. And, and Yahoo was very complicated. All that web one portal stuff got too complicated, I think. But browser wars did benefit from moving towards slimmer browsers. Firefox did it by factoring out a lot of the gugas that were in late 90s browsers and suites of browser mail, calendar news agents into extensions. And so we made extensions popular with Firefox and Chrome copied it and now set the pace for extensions with the Chrome web store. Chrome itself became more minimal because Google said, don't you just want this postmodern, super thin border around our beautiful painting of our services on the web? You just want to see our stuff, our web content, we'll get the browser out of the way. When I first saw it over a friend's shoulder, I thought, wait, is that a notepad with tabs? I couldn't tell what it was. It looked like, it didn't look like a browser. But Thinner browsers are better in general if you have this extension mechanism that lets expert users, especially these developers and lead users, I mentioned, get some extensions and plug them in. Got yeah. it. Brendan, just real quick there in the regulatory question. I'm, I, I always take a lot of fun in pointing out the idiotic irony when people say, we're surrounded by all these tech monopolies. And I point out that you're using the plural to describe monopolies. Like, how can there be more <laughs> than one? How many tech monopolies do you need to worry about before you know you've got a problem with competition? But how do we define the browser market that you're now battling in? For example, Amazon dominates online retail, but it doesn't dominate retail. Google could dominate online search, but we search when we're not necessarily online as well. I remember I went to this eminent professors and regulatory conference in Brussels, all the great and good of the DG Comp are there. And this is, I'm telling you, Brendan, this was 2016, 2017, and I didn't hear the word app mentioned once. They just talked about the web without even referring to apps. And I'm thinking about app metrics like downloads, active users, session counts. You have to triangulate those figures to understand app economics. They weren't even aware that apps existed. So if you were a regulator, how would you define the market in the browser wars? So the regulators are always a, a beater or 10 behind, and they're always e easily tricked into doing something that freezes incumbents in their power relationships. Mm -hmm. We've dealt with, you know, again, these sort of Pareto or worse distributions where it isn't a monopoly, but if Google, if IE has, or in that state, but it's prime, had 80%, we could do things quickly and get things done. And that's, in some ways, that's you see that in nature. You see that in biology. So if you're in an evolving system where there are, uh, certain players that got on first, certain genes are successful in helping your immune system cope with novel diseases. They're going to sweep the population. JavaScript did that. It's a, I'm going to say it's a good virus or a good gene, but it needed to be standardized and needed good stewardship. It needed to be evolved over time. That was where JavaScript, I think, and a lot of the web standards got stagnant and security holes and other problems and just stagnation hurt the web in the late 90s into the noughties until Firefox and then Chrome. But we don't deal with pure monopolies and the monopolies, what are they doing now? It's not the textbook that way. Loss through price mm -hmm. power, it's everything, everything's free anyway. It's all loss leaders. So what they're really doing is they're just trying to corner the future markets. They have this 
you know, big advertising exchange where they make all their money, everything else is free, and they want to make sure that any future thing like AI, they can dominate. And you may have seen Google some weeks claiming somebody inside Google said, we have no moat on AI. And that's probably true. I, I'm hopeful that through technology and we user effects, we innovate around these things. But we've always battled them through being the, the David versus Goliath. We haven't waited for the regulators. We do work with regulators, especially on privacy, also on areas of regulation that I think aren't so much privacy as antitrust. I'll just say it. I mean, they call DOJ was calling everybody in the Valley. They called me. I talked to them. And they're not going to be quick, but sometimes they do wake up every 20 years and do something. And it's important to keep mm. them informed. Otherwise, they will freeze the world around the old incumbents. Okay, Bre Brendan, we've got to go to the break. There's so much to unpack we're going to get into in the second half. I think it's fascinating now that, as I tried to point out at one of those conferences in Brussels in the past two years that I've attended it, this great idea of the DMA and opening up all this Google search data to other companies. And there are basically four companies in the world, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Meta, that would have the cloud computing capacity to ingest billions of search queries a second and maybe to be able to make use of it. So what I think we're ending up talking about is monopolies or quasi-oligopolies trying to compete with each other. And it's nice to know that there's a few other folks nibbling around the edges and not simply throwing their hands up in the air. With that, we'll be back in a moment in part two. We want to go deep down the rabbit hole with Brendan's comments about AI and how it could unseat some of the structures of power. We'll be back in a moment with more Bubble Trouble. Thanks. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome back to part two of Bubble Trouble with my dear friend, CEO of the Brave Browser, Brendan Ike and Will Page, and we're about to go down the rabbit hole talking about the impact of AI and whether it could undermine those big tech companies that seem to be dominating everything these days. Brendan, are LLMs just hitting the starting line now with the idea of grabbing as much data as they can get their paws on? We had a discussion in our last podcast about copyright and can someone stand against their stuff being stolen by all of these crawler programs and AIs that decide that anything out there on the web is fair game? And will AI be won by those who can get the largest training sets? How can we 
fight this reality of the bigger getting bigger and biggest being even more gargantuan with the crawling they're doing in their AI programs? So that's a great question because Brave has a search engine now, as I said, browser and search are flip sides of a single coin. And that means we have a query log and a click log. This is very valuable. It means we know what people are querying without knowing who they are. We don't link this to any profile or identity. And therefore we can do things like answer queries, zeitgeist sort of queries, things that you want to use to train AI. When you looked at what OpenAI released with ChatGPT, it was up through the middle of 2021 and everyone noticed this and is grumbling about it still. But having a good data feed is hard. And there's a problem Cory Doctorow called Metacraft where you have all sorts of layers of adversarial <laughs> gaming. And the bigger the system, the harder it is to defeat this. So I think that's why I think small models finely tuned are better. You're seeing the really big, dumb models are becoming commodified. If they are trained from some huge feed like Google could have easily, it's going to be not just dumbed down to a very low common denominator. It's going to be subject to all sorts of gaming from nation states and commercial interests. It's going to be full of junk. And I think what we all want is a better handle on our own curated, high-quality, personal set of experts and friends and colleagues. And that's where these smaller models can shine. And that's fascinating because what we're all afraid of is from whether it's professional publishers who all of a sudden are waking up and realizing that ChatGPT had taken a subscription to the Wall Street Journal and sucked down every article they've written in the past 50 years. Or creators who realize that their blog is being used to train an alternative AI-generated blog, which has launched a Substack and said, why don't you pay me instead of this creator because I'll be half the price. And I do agree that a lot of the training that's happening for individuals is superfluous because yeah. it doesn't fit what our needs are. Will, I know you want to pick up on a couple points here, but I'll toss the mic over to you. Sure. So in part one, I tried to lay a sort of economic baseline for Richard's guitar solos. And we talked about privacy and how you can't really have both encryption and content moderation. You have to pick one or the other. We talked about two-sided markets. The simple model of, you think back to how McMaster launched the Diners Club in Manhattan, 7% to the merchant, zero to the consumer. More people will dine at your restaurant, you'll regroup your freeze. And we also talked about monopolies with the plural, with the S on the end, or what I like to call monopsonies. And Brendan, I'm sure you'll love, we had this hilarious politician called Screaming Lord Such from the Monster Raving Looney Party, lost 46 by-elections in his career in politics, and played with Jimmy Page in the rock band. But he used to always campaign for two competition authorities. I think that's something that you could campaign for in your work as well. You can't have one monopoly upholding competition. You need two. So that gives us a kind of a foundation of where the economics of these browser wars are. What I would turn to as a subject in my book, which I called the strategy tax. And people agree to disagree on what this word means. It's still in its formative years here. But what I like to think about it is when a tech company foregoes competition today to win competition tomorrow, you actually alluded to this at the closeout of part one. So my favorite example is during the lockdown, everybody had to do video conferencing and Google made it easier to use Zoom than their own Google Hangout product. And I always thought that was interesting. Large monopoly, big company, but they're going to, offer the competition over their own product to make calendar more attractive. So they're foregoing competition today in video conferencing tools to win competition tomorrow in terms of who's got the best calendar. Now, Richard's debated with me on the run when he can keep pace with me many times, but I just wanted to toss this idea of strategy tax to you. Do you think that when we look at tech and how it competes for convenience, 
like you said in part one, monopolies reduce output and increase costs. These monopolies are expanding output and for the consumer, eliminating costs. Do you think there's such a thing as a strategy tax where tech companies forgo competition in order to serve convenience? Well, I do. And your Zoom example is great, but I think it's rare. I think I wish it happened more often. I think mm-hmm. Zoom just had the right timing to take advantage of lockdowns and Google couldn't catch it. Google hates products. I mean, what else can they say? Except for search and their own infrastructure, internal products. They've killed some, you've seen the Google graveyard and it's, <laughs> whether it's top <laughs> is talk. Is a company every 18 days? I guess it's meat now. I don't even know what they call it, but they just don't love it. And they were never going to be able to make it to overtake Zoom. So they just roll with that to help their other products, like you said. But that's more the exception than the rule, I think, with Google. Like uh, on uh, YouTube, or you see this with other companies like Facebook or Reddit now, Twitter, once you get enough power, you should close down those third-party apps and clients and APIs. You just shut everything down. Mm. And the strategy tax may come help you in a case like Zoom in, in lockdowns, but it's a rare thing. But I think we have a great example of that with Microsoft in the sense that they have time and again made a good enough product. And I think Teams is a great example. They have the enterprise mm-hmm. base. They saw that Slack was starting to eat into enterprise messaging and Zoom was starting to eat into enterprise video conferencing. And they put them both into a product called Teams. And the minute they got everybody to adopt Teams because it was bundled into their office subscription, they stopped developing for it. And it is shockingly bad, but it is Mm. good enough. And so I guess Mm -hmm. the question is, both with these AI models and with all the products from these tech companies, how do you keep them on their toes? I guess you would say a company like Brave is keeping them on their toes so that they don't just rest on their laurels once they've solved that convenience question for consumers that you are locked into something I was going to talk about in the first section, the behavior of defaults. I mean, we're all ultimately lazy. We all ultimately have the power of brand and the power of defaults. Will loves to talk about Barry Schwartz and the paradox of choice and how it paralyzes Mm -hmm. all of us to have too many choices. But we just say, oh, well, it's easy to buy on Amazon. Let's go do it without realizing that we may not be getting the best deal because there is no price comparison on a platform like Amazon. By the way, I love Schwartz's work. And I think we saw an example of that with Brave. We had Brave Search using the Bing API for image search. We couldn't do image search ourselves. We were starting small. We did web search. We do our own indexing. We don't have to crawl the whole web like Google does. But we couldn't do images. So we used Bing API and people said, hey, Brave Search does images. Great. There's an image tab. I can search for images. Some of them noticed in 2021 spring when Tank Man stopped returning the Tiananmen protester in front of the tank. That happened on Bing with their image search. It happened on Brave image search. And people suddenly said, oh, wait a minute. You're using Bing's API. But a lot of people didn't notice. Recently, in preparation for what I called the Bing Ectomy, getting rid of our dependence on this Bing API for image search, and cutting over to our mm-hmm. own image search, which is coming out next week, we gave people instead a choice. We said, oh, sorry, no more Potemkin Village Brave image search. It's really just Bing API. Y- you pick Bing or you pick Google. And people hated it. They hated the interrupt. They hated having to choose. They hated the fact that we weren't pretending like we were doing it. I mean, you think we get credit for being honest, but it didn't happen. So I think there's somebody deep there. And that ties into the power of defaults. If the defaults are good enough, people will stick with them. And they will stick right. with them way too long, like with Internet Explorer on Windows. But mm-hmm. if you get Inertia. these Firefox, Firefox as a new browser that got attention, or Brave, I'm not saying we're at the same level Firefox got to, because frankly, it was easier against IE. It was so bad. Chrome is a harder competitor for Brave to craft, but we can do it because of ads and ad blocking, that you can give people enough of a choice that some people, will lead users will adopt it. They'll tell their friends and family, and that will start a 
a rising wave of consciousness, which goes through regulators, it goes through standards bodies, through web developers first, and that can move markets. And your point is basically that outside of these lead users, it is bloody hard to get your average person to care. Because they're, what you said about they will just right on because that happened to my IE. That was the same story as Internet Explorer. And how many people have are using the Edge browser today? Because I don't know. That's what came with my Microsoft package, even though it is shockingly bad. (laughs) Yes. Yep. Just on defaults, I think it's interesting to think that through, which is from defaults to inertia. We have, and every single member of our audience has a great example of that in front of us, which is the QWERTY keyboard, Q-W-E-R-T-Y, specifically designed to slow secretaries down because it's an inefficient layout of a keyboard. Yet every time we've tried to migrate away from QWERTY, it's failed. Do you see a sort of QWERTY dilemma facing the browser wars in terms of we always do what we've always done? Yes, this happens in all mature categories. And I think it, with browsers, it's kind of happened. There's the tabs on top, the address bar, Chrome kind of set. Everyone's used to typing into that bar keywords, which I think is good. Though some people still type google.com and then put their search into the middle of the page. It's surprising <laughs> number of people do that. But yes, there's a stagnation in UX you have to fight over time. On the other hand, the browser is continuing to dominate as the universal app, especially the bigger the screen, not just on desktop, but on iPad. Get other apps on iPad, but you need fewer than my phone, and you don't get them foisted so successfully on users. And a lot of our brave loyalists will take the mobile site and put it a home screen icon, a shortcut that launches a brave runtime around that site, and it's a better app than the app. This is true of YouTube, especially. Just a quick one there. At the very start, you introduced what you're doing in terms of rewarding attention, essentially, and that's a fascinating mm. topic for me. There's a chapter in my book called Paying Attention. And right there, I always like to point out the language is currency. It's paying attention. Other languages, Swedish, French, Spanish, it's offer, share, or give attention. But in English, we use a currency of pay attention. Talk to me a little bit about that, because I've often had this bug in my base bin, which is the value of attention is not necessarily what you receive now. Let's develop the Barry Schwartz paradox of choice. We have too much choice out there in front of us. It's the ability to shut out distractions. Like, what's the value of focus? Do you have any thoughts on that? Which is, I don't value your attention. I value the ability to screen out the distractions. Sure. And if you use Brave and then go back to Chrome and go through the top 10,000 publishers, it's really unpleasant. There's just a lot of clutter from the ad tech and the first party promotions. And the third party smuggled into the first party because they tricked the publisher into putting something. Wow. So it's an inefficient market. Yeah. And and using Brave, it's a lot cleaner. And so your attention can be focused where you want it. And that is more valuable. That increases your productivity in in, in raw terms. So attention is very tricky, though. And Richard mentioned the DMA, trying to get search data shared after a three to six month delay, I think is what they're talking about. That's too late. That's way too late, right? You need Mm. to get stuff fresh. And this is the problem for these AI systems. They need to be trained on fresh feeds because the human feedback reinforcement learning is very quick to adapt. And it, if you're out of date, it, it just, it's awfully stale. So, yeah. so you need attention to be sort of discounted. You need to get fresh data in and you need to get the fresh results in front of the users. And that's a challenge for our attention economics. Now, Brendan, as someone who is not in the, in the business of serving massive vats of Kool-Aid or kombucha or whatever is served in big tech cafeterias, <laughs> I've got a sort of paraphrase one of my very favorite authors, Philip Roth, in one of my very favorite books, The Human Stain, where he talks about the sanctimoniousness just being so crushing and 
having listened on Monday morning in the UK on Radio 4 to Nick Clegg, the former deputy prime minister from Meta, <laughs> begging for regulation of AI. I have to wonder there, is this just the fox? And could we please have the slowest rooster in the chicken coop watch <laughs> benignly while I routinely nip in and steal some chickens? Clearly, there's been a huge amount of fear mongering around AI and all of the tech companies are beating their breasts, going to the White House, promising to be, you love this word, responsible in their using of AI while they continue to advantage themselves commercially. How do you see this whole debate over regulating AI with companies themselves for once? Who would have thought it? Begging to be regulated. Yeah, I mostly ignore it because I would be really mad if I paid too much attention. Of course, it's what you say. It's these, <laughs> these frauds and charlatans trying to, speaking up for big tech, saying let's regulate it. it. Some of these charlatans are like sex cult founders in Berkeley, these weirdos. You know how I mean. Then they're saying, oh, it's going to be Skynet. It's going to destroy us. We have to pause it. I think that's all garbage. These LOMs are powerful and they're changing things like I mentioned text-to-speech and page translation, natural language translation. And they're going to create very powerful agents, especially if you can then tie them in through multiple models into physics and math. Steve Wolfram's stuff does physics and math, right? It does calculus. So you should be able to do right. that. That's going to be extremely powerful. It should not be in charge of missile launch codes, but I don't think it's going to destroy us. I think idiocracy is more likely to be a problem. So I, I just I try to ignore this to the extent I don't mock it. And we're out to innovate around it because if we move quickly and we get these lead users, consumer is where computing evolved to from enterprise and initially government scale giant room-sized computers, it's now in your pocket. And what consumers choose still matters, even though the gatekeepers are there. So the enterprise will still be stuck with teams because it's bundled with Office, even though it's terrible. And it's hard to dislodge that. But if you go against the browser, there's more choice. And that consumer is king, I hope. Hmm. We even saw this with lockdowns in, in the COVID era because people were working from home and the IT department couldn't restrict the apps you use so much. I think that helped Zoom. Brenda, quick one for myself, though. It's a very selfish question, I guess, but we do like to probe which professions are going to get upended by LOMs and AI. And my sister Annie, who listens to the show, is our professional interpreter, French, Russian, and Norwegian, strange set of languages. But do you, you've mentioned translation a few times. Do you think the translation <laughs> profession in, and the interpretation profession is going to get upended by this technology? I think that... It'll change things like all other automation it has, like the lever and simple machines did in prehistory. It's going to make it important that you have new people who build wheels or carts, whereas before people just carried things. And so mm -hmm, you're going that's to have the, the best translators will still be needed because these systems are kind of blind to use a religious term, sola scriptura systems. They're just pretending the text is the source of truth. Or maybe it's the new criticism. The text interprets itself, right? This is not true. <laughs> it was superseded by the post-structuralist Stanley Fish who said, I interpret it for you. But, you know, these systems are not grounded in physics. And that's a problem. That's why they, you get such bogus answers. People ask them to write code interpreters. You'll pay for it. And it can still write code that looks very pretty. And it's absolutely wrong. It's written with bugs. So there's room for human intelligence, though, because we haven't got, in my view, a compelling, complete model of the mind mapped onto the brain. So we're not going to build AGI right now. We're going to build these amazing agents that are really good with language. Just a real quick one before Richard takes you to the Smoke Signals conclusion of our podcast. As a three-strike veteran of the browser wars, I just wanted to throw this curveball <laughs> at you. When did you first start seeing bands 
changed their name to game Google search, like the famous one, The Weekend, drops the E off The Weekend. You know, there's a Glaswegian band called Churches, which spelled their name with a yes. E. And my favorite one was when the Glasgow band started, this was around 2012, they started coming up with band names to play with Google search. There's a band that called themselves Casual Sex. You know, I don't recommend you look for photographs of this band on Google search because you ain't going to get what you're after. But when, when did you first start seeing people play around with words to game the search engine? I think it was around 20 years ago. I think you're right. Google really came into my notice in 1998, and I was still using things like Alta Vista. And Google wow. was really, Ooh. it was really good then. And we used Web it, crawler. we did the Firefox deal in 2004. But around that time, around the time of user innovation, colonizing the sort of user-generated content platforms, which I think was one of the big Web2 innovations, the read-write web, you could have a lot of people contributing to folksonomies or to blogging sites or commenting systems you started seeing people adopting pigeon spellings to beat others in search rank. So it's Mm. been at it for a while. So uh, by the way, as a great example of the kind of evil symbiosis between band names and Google search, one thing I just heard today was that TikTok as a platform has as its third largest advertiser an ADHD medication that promotes self-diagnosis called Cerebral. So the platform that does more than it can possibly imagine to divert and dissect and chop up your attention into the littlest bits it can, i.e. few second videos, is also the leading platform for advertising a self-diagnosed ADHD medicine, which like TikTok itself is extremely addictive and and, and very addictive. This reminds me of, I, I once went out on a date to a place called Atlantic City, won't be going back there again. And the date went pear-shaped because I kept on arguing with my date, lovely Haitian woman. And she, we kept saying, she said, look at all the economic development in Atlantic City. This is all Donald Trump. This is 2005, by the way. Look at all the good that he's done. And I kept saying, but is this the right type of economic development? These are all casinos. Is this what we should be building? Yeah. Argued, argued, argued. And on the bus back up to New York, I had the winning case, which is all these billboards as you left Atlantic City promoting counseling services. Buy two, get a third three for gambling addiction. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And as you got back to New York, you could see the greatest extractive industries of all of the banks and their tall towers at Lower Manhattan. Let me move on, Brendan, to our final portion of Bubble Trouble. As someone who's listened to the show many times, we have a section called Smoke Signals, where we ask our guests to give us a couple of those uh uh-uh moments when you hear something you just know is a misdirection play, is terminology or metaphors that just make you cringe When you're listening to people talk about big tech or AI, what are the kind of things that you're hearing? What are the couple things you'd warn people to be cautious of, show that we're in bubbles, kind of like $6 trillion for the metaverse, that just make you face palm and roll your eyes? Sure. So this has happened, perhaps it's happened even more often now. You're seeing this with all the gloom and doom around AI and the need to pause to help the incumbents, really. You're seeing it with what I think is not so much talk, because there's plenty of hype talk. It's the VC investments that are now already going bad. Things like Jasper, was it 100 million or over 100 million on a 10 figure valuation? It's essentially a thin wrapper around open AI. AI is not going to be this easy first mover on the user interface wins. It's not just going to be a chatbot that becomes your NPC friend for life, your BFF that you can talk to while you order your ADHD medication for TikTok overdosing. People are going to find, I think, the real uses for these LLMs in systems that have higher quality. And that's why I'm in favor of these smaller models, finally tuned. So 
I see lots of hype. I see, I look at VC and debt, which PE loves. I think you had a guest talk about this recently mm-hmm. as warning signs. When you see debt being abused and then you see interest rates went as things get rolled over, things oh. are going to blow up. They're going to detonate. I'm probably going to piss off my few VC friends left, but there's just too little <laughs> accountability. And, you know, that a lot of them were front running crypto projects and it wasn't a good idea, except that they got out early and then now they're avoiding crypto. So thanks a lot, guys. We'll see you on the next hype cycle. And those who went into things like Jasper are going to suffer. Debt is, is obviously now costly. And as it rolls over, that's going to hurt a lot of these debt financed companies or these private equity super companies. So and where did SPACs go, for instance? Remember the SPAC hype cycle? Is there another one in the technology field where, I mean, you must see so much obfuscation, misdirection, kind of just rank nonsense masquerading as the most intelligent person in the room? I mean, where is your biggest alarm bells in terms of bullshit generator ringing right now <laughs> with respect to this whole AI hype and especially to some of the stuff coming out of big tech? Yeah, I mean, the AGI panic pushers, that I shouldn't discount it because maybe they will get a regulator to do something really dumb. That would be bad. Will mentioned content moderation. Obviously, there are, there's bad content out there and it's often illegal and you have to worry about it. We have to worry about that in Brave Search. But if you have technology that can handle it in a way that preserves privacy, you should use that. And there are techniques for doing this. I won't get into all the mumbo jumbo, the mathematics, but crypto algorithms and protocols can do a lot for us. We rely on them for our credit card numbers to be safe when we do payments on the web. And that was just a big innovation from the late 90s that had to be patched up. It's fixed and made secure over time. We should have more like that. And it can handle things like CSAM and other problems that need to be detected. Apple's trying to do it with image recognition. And that's got a big false positive problem. You can, again, see Cory Doctor on this. I, I don't think that's the last word on it. I don't think we should throw up our hands and say everything has to be unencrypted so that Big Brother can just check for the naughty bits because that has too much downside risk. But I do see panic porn and AGI concern as warning signs. Both people are trying to lock in incumbent power and somebody else is trying to sell something. They're trying to push their new VC-funded super AI startup. Brendan, we could go on and on because I think we've only just scratched the surface of a bunch of super interesting topics. We'd love to have you back in in another year and see if Brave got to 50 million users at this point, if you can get to 100 million and equally how you're going to develop your own fight the power version of AI tools that maybe show some of the big tech guys that bigger isn't always better and biggest isn't always best. Thank you so much for joining us. On behalf of my co-host, Will Page, this has been a terrific episode of Bubble Trouble with Brendan I, CEO of Brave, and we'll be talking to you next week on another topic about AI hype. Back soon. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share it on your socials. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Nett at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, from my co-host Richard Kramer, I'm Will Page. Hi, everyone. The Other Hand is the go-to podcast for anyone interested in UK and Irish business, finance, economics and politics. Chris and Jim take the issues of the day and discuss in ways that traditional media fear to tread. Jargon-free analysis and more than a little opinion have taken our podcast to top of the most listened charts. 
We'd be delighted if you could join the conversation.